welcome everyone to the second episode of Talking Yang. Today we're going to get into some exciting polling updates as Yang is creeping up on the extremely Hispanic candidate Beto. And we're also going to talk a little bit about Meghan McCain's bizarre fight against marriage counseling that involves whiskey and guns. And we'll discuss Yang's latest policy updates regarding robocalls, how to fix dying malls. We'll get into a lot of other stuff. You waited all week for this, so let's get after it. Okay, so we're going to start out with some news. Ross Perot died. Um, Andrew Yang said he was going to ban robocalls. Uh, he was on The View this week. Seems like that was a pretty big hit. Mm-hmm. Um, some local McDonald's uh, converting to total kiosks are getting there. And then uh, Andrew Yang came out pretty strongly against an Antifa attack. That seems like a no-brainer, but hasn't been for most of the Democratic candidates. We're going to say all, since we're not going to include John Delaney as a Democratic candidate. <laughs> and, uh, then we're going to get to some of uh, Amazon, which is already spending a ton of money in retraining workers, labor workers that are being replaced by automation uh, Andrew Yang told us this was going to happen. Prophet Yang. And then we'll get into some of his numbers. How's he doing in the polls? These matter a lot. He's got to get better in the polls. Um, how his donors are looking, some Twitter follow numbers, um, and then some events if you want to go to some events. So let's start out with some news stuff. Ross Perot died. Uh, I obviously don't know a ton about <laughs> Ross Perot because I'm not old like you. So talk well, a little uh, bit about what Ross Perot is like, um, how he compares to Andrew Yang. Yeah, I mean, so Ross Perot, just to recap real quick, we went over this last week a little bit, um, but he was an independent candidate. Uh, He actually ran uh, at one point under the Reform Party. Um, um, But this was back in the 90s when Clinton and Bush were running. President uh, George H.W. Bush wasn't very popular after his first term. He started off saying no new taxes, and then he raised taxes, and he had an incredibly low approval rating. Uh, And then Clinton entered the race, and Ross Perot was uh, very anti-Democrat at the time. He was a businessman. He started a bunch of early computer data systems companies. Um, He's a billionaire as a result, and uh, he wanted to make sure, first off, doesn't like George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, because he wasn't really, he was in these endless wars and working on NAFTA and free trade, which was something he also was not very for. Um, And so he wanted to make sure that we had somebody in the office that was going to tackle the debt. At the time, the national debt was around $4 trillion. And one of his main things was how that's just going to be trickled down and, and, you know, our children and our grandchildren are going to have this debt and we need to have a balanced budget. That was probably his main thing outside of NAFTA. Um, but what happened was Ross Pro decided to run or he did, he decided not to run. He did a Larry King interview and he said that the only way he doesn't want to go run for president. And the only way he would is if grassroots people would get him on the ballot in 50 States. And so eventually enough people got him on the ballot in 50 states so that he could run as an independent. And so he ran as an independent candidate against Bill Clinton his first time around and George H.W. Bush for re-election. Um, the, the narrative 
behind this was that Ross Pro was a spoiler. Uh, they think that he took yeah. a lot of. If you have a chance, go back and watch the debates with Bush and Clinton because he's literally standing in the middle of them as like a spoiler, and they're both just kind of looking at him like, hey, <laughs> what are you doing up here, man? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, he, obviously saw him that way and didn't respect him at all. Yeah, and I mean, the, the interesting thing is, um, so I'm going to skip forward and we'll go back, uh, is he at exit polls because they all wanted to figure out who's he taking votes from and exit polling showed that he actually split Bush and Clinton. Perfect. At 38% apiece, he took votes from them. And then the other, the remaining uh, 24% were people that weren't going to vote for either person. They were just not going to vote. And so this is where I draw a pretty stark correlation between Ross Perot and Andrew Yang is I think that Andrew Yang is has the same type of machine behind him that he's taking people from all walks of life, all political backgrounds that are resonating with his plain spoken data driven approach to why he has these policies that he has and what he wants to do to help everybody, which is exactly and it's important to point out that their policies aren't even similar. A lot of them are really different, but that their mm -hmm. approach is what's really the same. And a lot of people are like, oh, my God, I'll never vote for a socialist candidate like Andrew Yang. Listen, I don't care about a lot of the policies that I disagree with him on. It doesn't matter to me. It's what's really important is how he's getting to those, how he's getting to his conclusions and the policies that he's drawing up. And it's obvious that he's going to adjust. So mm -hmm. even though Ross Perot is very different policies than Andrew Yang, I'd vote for both of them right now. Yeah, I mean, because I think both of them are pragmatic. So they're yeah. looking at these policies from a very, you know, specific data-driven approach. And by doing so, people can, you know, understand them and know that they want to do the right thing. And if other data comes along, they're not averse to changing their minds. Um, and I mean, that... Unfortunately, you know, I mean, Ross Perot at one point was leading both Clinton and Bush uh, about, I think it was about six months out from the election. Uh, and then he dropped out for, I think, two or three months and didn't come back into the race until October because he dropped out because he felt that he fell for all the narrative that he was going to be a spoiler and he didn't want Clinton to get elected. He really didn't want Clinton elected. Um and so he dropped out in hopes that the lesser of two evils would be elected. Uh, and then by October, he says, well, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure that if I'm not, in, I'm the only one that can beat Clinton because nobody likes George H.W. Bush. He's done a horrible job and nobody's supporting him. Uh, so he jumped back in and he, he took 19% of the popular vote, which is the most of any independent candidate in modern history. And he pro he could have won. I honestly think that if he would have stayed in the race, he could have won because America had his back. And in an open general election like that, you can vote for whoever you want. It's not a primary. You know, back then they had two very clear candidates for the major parties. And then there was Ross Perot, the independent, that he took out took out uh, infomercial ads for 30 minutes and primetime television to share charts and talk to the American people about these really important policies. I mean, his charts, Yang's PowerPoint. Um, I think if Yang did something similar to that, I don't know how he would orchestrate it. Yeah, I or even nowadays, some kind of short videos 
with animation would be huge. I mean, he's done some of that, yeah. not not very much, but I mean, I think even primetime TV, because really that's the that's the electorate that he's not reaching. Yeah, if he could do like some awesome short animated video commercials with like demonstrations of the charts and the data with, you know, really well spoken and in some good music and stuff, that would be really huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the the challenge there is, does he have the funding for it? Probably not. Um, so, I mean, that's going to be a very important. Well, he's going to start advertising at some point, you know, provided he makes the next debate. And if he does, it might as well be that instead of just him walking in a cornfield talking. Yeah. Viewers, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder if that would work though anymore, because if you think about like how, f- like people don't watch commercials anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but they if, might watch it if it's something so different, you know, I, th- that comes I on. think if it was a special, so like I, if there was some kind of like, that's why Ross Pro worked like mm-hmm. every other, no other independent candidate has ever done that. And Trump only worked because he got all the free press, you know, I mean, yeah. it was Donald Trump. Yeah. So, I mean, but for Ross Perot, he, you know, he put millions of dollars behind these 30 minute, um, 30 minute, uh, seminars or whatever you want to call them on TV. And you do that at 7 PM and people are going to watch. So I think if Andrew Yang could do that, even like a 15 minute spot or even a 30 minute spot, I don't know what that would take to get him on primetime television. If that'd be maybe $3 million now or maybe five. Um, But if there were a way to make that happen, he would reach those audiences of the the middle age and the older Americans that first off don't even know him mm-hmm. or only know headlines of him, mm-hmm. which aren't enough because they that's where they're where they're consuming information. Yeah. Yeah. So, it might be worth the investment of hiring a good team yeah. to do something like that. Which, sure. you know, uh talking about uh like recent news like you know he's up in the polls uh, a little bit just a little bit in certain places where he has some name recognition um but if he if he gains in the polls as these other candidates start dropping out like swalwell that dropped out there's going to be a few more like him before the next debates i'm pretty sure um you know as that gets whittled down he's going to get more attention and i think when that happens he'll get more donors and he might have the ability to do something like that. And yeah, this is a really I, tough year for a for a guy like Andrew Yang because there's so many people. You, he he just gets lumped in with everyone else right now, and mm-hmm. it's hard to separate from that. It's, as long as there's 25 candidates. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the new normal. Because I mean, the last election was kind of like that too. And I think that the more and more people are realizing how beneficial it is for them to run, even if they don't win. Mm. I mean, Eric Swalwell now forever will have on his resume that he was a candidate for president, even though he did absolutely nothing. And it'll probably win him reelections pretty easily now. That's true. So even if they drop out early, it's huge benefit to them. Yeah, it could be a marketing ploy for a lot of them. Yeah. I mean, not for somebody like an Andrew Yang because he doesn't need it. Yeah. He doesn't need it. I mean, I don't. I don't think it has as much benefit to somebody that's you know in the general public. Right. You know, if you're in politics and you're looking for speeches and stuff like that, then yeah, maybe he'll sell some more books out of it. Um, yeah, but I mean, even that it probably isn't a no. significant no. enough, you know, to be life changing. 
sales are a big percentage of his income. Yeah. I mean, he sold his company and he made plenty off of that when he did yeah. back then. So, yeah. um, but he is, he is gaining attention. So, I mean, that's, that's a good thing. He's up like, I think 25 or 30% in his Twitter following since the debates. So that's pretty significant for somebody at his level yeah. with no name recognition. Yeah. Yeah, so to recap our Ross Perot segment, uh, <laughs> I think it's what we do to candidates all the time is they jump into the race and then we tell them, okay, we want a thousand detailed policies on everything that you can possibly think of, or we're going to destroy you for it. And then they do that. And you, you kind of have to, but what I'm excited about with Yang is that I really believe that if they write something in hurry, which they obviously have to, that he'd be totally willing to adjust on it. And something that we killed Mitt Romney for and called him a flip-flopper is all the time he'd be, he would adjust. And who knows mm -hmm. if it was because of polls or he changed to try to get votes. I'm sure there was some of that, but it's really important that when you're writing a bunch of stuff in a hurry to try to get a campaign off the ground, that you're willing to look back on it and say, eh, this isn't going to work. We need to adjust it. Yeah. I mean, I wonder where, um, I haven't heard of anything yet where Yang has adjusted, so to speak. Like he seems pretty, like pretty clear on his policies. He just hasn't had to yet. Yeah. But I, yeah. I think he definitely would. But I also think it's, I don't think he's going to need to do much of that. And I think, Mostly because his policies are very, uh, they're not emotional policies. So like his policies are based on data and statistics and all these other things that most other candidates um, base theirs on sentiment of the general public. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, you could say the freedom dividend is probably his most um, emotional policy because nobody has really done this at that much of a scale, but there are definitely examples of it. Um, so, I mean, I think it's still data driven, which is why I don't think he's going to flip flop that much. It's not like he's saying, um, I don't, I don't know. I can't, I can't think of a topic or a policy that he might flip flop on. Um, uh, maybe think, scale back. Yeah, I think he, you know, he might reconsider 16 year olds voting. Um, <laughs> That might be something that uh, I, I could see him changing. I think it would be small things like that. Or I think, you know, foreign policy stuff, he obviously doesn't know a lot about. And yeah. I, I think the adjustments will come once he once he's elected. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of that. I, I agree, uh, especially on foreign policy. That makes sense because yeah. he just doesn't know enough. But OK, he so he wants to ban robocalls. Yeah, uh, just for fun, I'll read you a robocall that I got today, and I I think I get <laughs> five or six of these a day. So oh, this God. is the voicemail that I got from Amber. Hi, this is Amber. That information I promised to you about helping you bring in ten thousand every ten to fourteen days by using simple voicemail drops, exactly like this. One in our system is one hundred percent done for you if you're interested in learning how I spend my time. And it goes on and on. So I get these all the time. And it's gotten to the point where I don't even answer my phone anymore. And I know it, that you can enter your phone number in like a registry. It's like a do not mm -hmm. call, robocall registry. Yeah, the do not call list. Yeah, but as far as I know, it's not enforced at all. And it's really easy for these companies to just send out millions of phone calls at one time. 
Yeah, it's I don't ever answer my phone anymore because of it. If I if it's not in my caller ID, I'm never going to answer my phone. I, I'm the same way, and I mean, I mean, I'm the same way at work too. Like, yeah. I get a lot of work calls, and I I work off of a cell phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I don't know the phone number or I don't know, uh, and it's not in my caller ID, I'm not answering it. You yeah. gotta leave me a message. There's no way. And I mean, we need to. Like, and then if you leave me a message, I'm definitely not calling you back. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely not listening to your message <laughs> unless it was transcribed in my. Yeah, my, maybe I'll read it. Re- voicemail the text but yeah i mean i think we need to make answering the phone enjoyable again <laughs> because like years ago you know this was that was like the thing with cell phones it's like they don't don't rub up call your cell phone yeah like only your landline and then something happened like eight or ten years ago where they started robocalling cell phones too and it's just annoying. Like having a phone is not enjoyable anymore. Has, has it ever worked? I don't understand what the like. What's the success rate on this? I, how is there any <laughs> ROI on, on robocalls? I mean, I think it's mostly like gullible and um, your mom, maybe elderly people. Yeah, my mom. <laughs> my mom almost fell for one of those like Nigerian prince like <laughs> things. <laughs> But it had a political spin on it. I had to convince her, no, mom, do not give them your money. No, mom, Um, that's not Eric Holder. Yeah, they were representing Eric Holder (laughs) and needing money from her for something. It was so ridiculous. Um, But that's how it works. Um, And But, I mean, commercial robocalls are the worst. You get them all the time. And they're not always robocalls. They're, you know, somebody doing just um, cold marketing. Yeah. And but it's annoying and it wastes time. It wastes a lot of human time and it makes people ignore phone calls. Like it used to be that people used to run to the phone to answer it. You know, even after we got caller ID, everyone would want to answer the phone because yeah. they know it would yeah, be someone that. that wanted to talk to you. Yeah, holy no. shit, someone wants to talk to me. Yeah, not somebody wants to sell shit or <laughs> yeah. take advantage of me. So I mean, I think banning robocalls is absolutely necessary, and but there needs to be some kind of really strong uh, penalty for it. Or it won't happen. Well, and the problem is it's really hard to track. They use all these, you know, who knows where they're calling from, and it's really hard to track them down. And every number, they, they can ping off of your local place where you are. So that's why they it can look like a local number, and they can go from anywhere. So they can send out thousands of numbers, and each one comes from a different location. Yeah, it's really similar to spam email. Yeah. Um, I just think it's a lot more disruptive because there's no good filter for robocalls. Spam email, robocalls, and junk mail. Like, why do these keep happening? Who? <laughs> yeah. How are, especially <laughs> mailing them. Like, that yeah. costs money and no one looks at them. I don't get it. I mean, it's got to be wasting tons of trees. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I would say 90% of the my mail is thrown away. Yeah, it gets ripped up and thrown in the recycling. It doesn't even get ripped up. Oh. <laughs> I don't bother with that. I don't have time. I'm not gonna give it that much time. <laughs> yeah, I just leave them in my mailbox now. Yeah, I'm gonna take them out. It's not worth it. Do so, they? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They just the the uh, the postal delivery guy is like, oh sweet, I get a bunch of extra junk mail today. Okay, that's how, was- that's how he fuels his fire, his furnace at home. <laughs> well, at least we found one good use. Okay, he was on the View. And I think pretty friendly crowd for Andrew Yang. 
other than maybe McCain, who I think or she, Joy Behar at first, <laughs> but she's yeah, not friendly to anybody. Out. Yeah, yeah, it's just Joy. <laughs> I think I don't what think Megan McCain likes anyone. Like any time, like I, I don't think even people that she likes, she likes. That's because she's on the View. Yeah, but and, I don't know. I, she comes off as like the least likable person on the View, and that's pretty hard to do. Yeah, she <laughs> she's out. She's always the most like disgruntled by everything. Yeah, everything is like anytime something said to her, she's like, "What did you just say?" And it's like a normal thing that you said. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you just asked about the weather. Excuse me, what? It's My like father she, died for that. <laughs> my, my father died for the weather <laughs> it's like it's like she uh she doesn't appreciate it when people have uh opinions that didn't originate with her yeah <laughs> so yeah like she like was it's something she hasn't thought of yet like how dare you yeah and i mean it was like what was the uh um i forget what she was trying what she was trying to trap andrew with and she was disagreeing. It wasn't the freedom dividend. It was something else. Well, I guess we'll have to get back to it. I mean, Joy Behar tried to get him with the freedom dividend. And then he he did a really good job. I think it was the marriage counseling that she was pushing back on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So she was pushing back on the marriage counseling for all, which, you know, I think that's just a normal position of anyone that doesn't support universal health care. Yeah, because um, that's just another kind of gets component. thrown into that bucket. Yeah, whereas I think if you do support universal health care, especially like marriage counseling, man, I mean, my wife and I did marriage counseling before we got married. Um, it was through our church at the time, um, which was fine. We weren't, it, but it wasn't like super theocratic, you know. It was just very general, like this is how you communicate well with each other and things like that, and. I it absolutely made me a better communicator with my wife and having those kinds of skills ahead of have, being married and living with each other and sharing responsibility for basically everything you do, um, I think is invaluable. I mean, we have a lot of people that get married that shouldn't <laughs> that would benefit from pre-marriage counseling. Um, and then we have a lot of people that um, just get married unprepared and deal with totally unnecessary struggles. I would like him to ban marriage before the age of 21. <laughs> I couldn't, I can't necessarily disagree with that. <laughs> I mean, I bet divorce would go way down. So what she said was that her version of marriage counseling is drinking Jack Daniels, shooting some guns and hanging out. Um, first of all, it's illegal. So I don't think that yeah. Andrew Yang is is going to be funding her extremely dangerous activity of drinking alcohol and shooting guns. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't exactly on board with her her proposal of how to so keep how out a good marriage. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, the view was a good was a good thing for Andrew Yang. Got him some exposure. I've already talked to a couple of women who are like, "Oh yeah, I saw Andrew Yang, that guy you keep talking about on the View." So That's it's good. A good yeah, and and he brought up um, universal basic income for mothers. Yeah, um, that's how he kind of put a good a good coating on it when Joy Behar was trying to point out, oh, this is a terrible idea. 
Like people are just going to get lazy and not do anything. Well, what about mothers that don't get Jack Yeah, They're doing everything? <laughs> <laughs> and we both have a really good perspective on that. My mom who raised 10 kids, you're married mm-hmm. to a doctor who has a couple of kids and it's well, she's it a resident. Up. So yeah. I don't want I don't want to make this sound like <laughs> so it's harder than when she'll be a doctor. <laughs> yeah, I mean 100% like yeah. she doesn't she doesn't get paid what I get paid. And right. I mean, I I do all right, but she's she works very hard. She works 60 to 80 hour weeks, you know, on average for what she does. And we have two kids at home and I have, I need a nanny to do my job because, you know, her hours are outside of daycare and things like that. And I mean, an extra, uh, geez, it would be an extra $24,000 a year in our household. That would be a huge benefit. Yeah. That would be a game changer. Yeah. Yeah. And I gr- grew up, with a stay-at-home mom raising 10 kids and it's it's something that comes up because you know when i would take economics classes that doesn't get included in your gdp um and it's something that would come up in the house is you you know my dad would work and then people would make jokes about oh mom doesn't have a job well (laughs) she definitely has a job she just doesn't get paid for it so i think that that's a good thing that he stressed on the view yeah, I think it was a good point. And I mean, <laughs> that's probably the most important deployment of the freedom dividend, in my opinion, is, you know, keeping families together and enabling them to, um, you know, get by without a struggle all the time. I mean, yeah. could you imagine what a difference it would have made for you guys if you had an extra $24,000 a year in the house? Yeah, it would have been a very big difference. <laughs> yeah. Probably would have had a, a working orchard a little bit faster. <laughs> yeah. So he's on the view. Um, we we both liked that a lot. Uh, and then there's some new stuff that came out. Um, Amazon is saying that they're going to retrain a bunch of workers. They're investing a ton of money in this. And this is something that really early on Andrew Yang talked about, and he doesn't think it's going to work. Uh, what do you think? I mean, I would have to, you know, I agree to a point. Like, I think, I think retraining internally might make sense as long as there is enough, um, enough available, enough availability of jobs elsewhere within that one business. But I think it's really hard to retrain somebody outside of that. Because, I mean, uh, it's like what Andrew Yang said is, you know, STEM jobs make up like 9% of jobs. And and these jobs that Amazon is retraining people out of are basically warehouse working jobs, you know, general labor positions. And those are in that other 91%. And they're going to try to get them set up for tech jobs. And... I just don't see there becoming enough tech jobs, but I think the other the other variable here is um, those tech jobs are getting taken over by AI. So basically, these frontline workers that are very labor intensive, we're developing some kind of robot system to take over for them. You go into an Amazon warehouse, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And then the knowledge-based positions, like in tech, especially ones that are heavy into... Uh, heavy into data science, which are the type of jobs they're actually looking to put these people into, 
we're already building AI that displaces those workers by exponential rates. So, I mean, it's only a matter of time. So even if they retrain successfully and they have the jobs to provide them right now, Amazon's going to do the same thing to do those jobs. The same thing. Yeah, I, I think this program is a little bit better than like a government program that tries to retrain people because you're in a company and they're trying to train you probably for a specific role at Amazon. And that could be a lot better than, okay, you're going to learn how to code. Now go find a job, uh, which could be a lot more difficult. So we'll see if it works. And I think it, it might work for Amazon, but I think the broader point is still, there's not going to be enough jobs. And it's it something might work I for now. That, yeah. A lot it of my friends for now for Amazon. Yeah. And college classmates that uh, went to school for economics as I did went into business analyst roles. Um, and I just, don't see those being around much longer either. Yeah, there was a there was a um, an article this week about uh, how they uh, fed this AI program a whole bunch of old research texts from I think there were medical I can't remember if they were medical research texts or anything, but there were research papers and the AI found a whole bunch of things that the humans missed and discovered all these additional things that we never found so i mean those kinds of things exist and you think that that's something that's really safe because our minds can put you know two and two together but when you feed something like that ai engine it has all the knowledge base and it can actually see like yeah. say, you, say you're doing a biological study um but it's also a you know a phd level chemist it's going to discover something you weren't even looking for as a biologist. Yeah. And that's yeah. what's happening. And I mean, that's same thing that's going to happen to those knowledge-based positions. It's just yeah. a matter of time. Yeah. And who knows how much time it'll be though. Um, and that might be, I, I going back to a little bit to Ross bro is he mentioned a lot of things that he thought were going to happen, but he was just way too early on. Um, for example, uh, being the world's policeman back then, everyone was all for that and thought yep. it was just <laughs> a great idea. And he wasn't at all. And now, I mean, 80% probably of the population wants us to get out of our wars. Mm -hmm. It's it, And Andrew Yang is kind of doing this with AI where, you know, he may be coming in a little too early on the scene uh, like Ross Perot did. Yeah, it's inevitable. We just don't know, you know, when it's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's it it's what what Andrew Yang was saying about it too is there's small penalty for acting too early, a huge penalty for acting yeah. too late. Yeah, and I mean, if we act too early, what what's the what's the risk? Okay, maybe we have deficit spending. We've never had that before. Um, <laughs> we have a little bit of deficit spending. People are happier, uh, you know, because they have more money and yeah. they're able to do things that they were, you know, and no one really even knows what a deficit is or why it matters. So it, it's never really been an issue. It's just been something to scream yeah. about. So, but we think, okay, it's going to happen, but it's already happening. Right. You were saying you went to your local McDonald's and what happened? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, I go to McDonald's a couple times a month probably when I'm in a rush. <laughs> so, I was I had to go uh pick some things up the other day and so I ran it. I went to McDonald's and I didn't go to the drive-through because it was crowded. There was like 
15 cars that I would have to wait for. So I, I ran inside and I hadn't been in there in probably a month or two. And I get inside and there's six kiosks and the four or five registers they had were down to down to two actually, but only one was working. I think they just had two as kind of a backup system in case one goes down. Um, and then there was one person up there. So everybody was putting in their orders in these kiosks. They can choose to pick it up at the counter, have it brought to their table, um, or they can choose to go up to the counter and pay with cash if they wanted to pay with cash. Or they can talk to somebody at the counter, that one person. But there was only one person standing at the counter, nobody ordering at the counter. Everybody's waiting around for their food. It was actually faster for me to order than usually being at McDonald's. And the food came out faster. But there was no, nobody around working. I mean, it was... I mean, I saw this a long time ago when I lived in Seattle uh, at Jack in the Box. They were the first ones that I noticed to do this. And this was probably seven years ago, um, seven or eight years ago. And I thought, yep, everyone's going to do this eventually. And it took some time, but now I think all McDonald's are going to be going that, that route within the next probably 12 to 18 months. You'll be hard pressed outside of small communities to see a McDonald's with all cash registers. Yeah. So it's already happening. And it's the, it's the reason that he gives for a lot of, uh, the jobs that are being lost. And why wages aren't increasing while GDP is increasing. It's because technology is taking over that that uh, wage increase. Absolutely. And I mean, these are, you know, machines that are going to last and you just need software updates. You know, like you, you probably purchase a machine for the one year cost of a of a human labor. You know, yeah. when, when you count all the, you know, health insurance, all these other things. Like, that's what we need to do. We need to take it like by applying a vat or something to these machines that are displacing humans, they can still save companies money, but we can also, you know, sh share those um, benefits in a way that supports the, our society as a whole. Otherwise, you know, they're getting rid of that. They don't have to pay health insurance. Um, health insurance costs go up for everybody because, you know, now it's, People are at higher risk because they're not having good employment. And I mean, there's just a, a myriad of problems, but these are jobs we should be displacing. Like, yeah. It shouldn't be a negative. It's kind of the same thing as like with immigrants. And then people are like, oh my God, they're taking all our lettuce picking jobs. Like you <laughs> wanted that anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'd prefer it were a robot, yeah. <laughs> you know, we yeah. want, we want to get rid of these, um, I don't want to say they're not valuable jobs, but they are, they, they don't provide fulfillment uh, beyond the, the dollar. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the not, only reason that, yeah, that most jobs exist. If you're it's doing like, a job, a machine can do, and you know, a machine can do your job that has to be demoralizing. Yeah. Right? I mean, I can't, even if you, yeah, even if you like it. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So I talk mean, about this American mall act. Oh yeah. I mean, there's a few few policies that Andrew was kind of uh, pushing this this week on his Twitter, uh, banning robocalls. We talked about freedom dividend, like we were talking about on the View, and then there was the American Mall Act, and this is something that's kind of close to me. Um, I I live in a a medium medium large city, and we have a lot of old malls that are half empty, 
some of that are completely empty and haven't gone used for years. Um, and they sit there and rather than being, well, um, I don't know about that. They're still used for the old people that like to walk in the morning. No, these ones are closed, but oh, some, some, of the, <laughs> some of them are used for old people. So walking. Not even that. Oops. Um, but you, uh, instead of, instead of repurposing these or keeping them up and providing, um, you know, entry level rents for people to start using these spaces. Um, they prefer to just leave them vacant and not use them and not put in that effort to keeping them up. And I think what, what Andrew is trying to say is that we need to repurpose these malls into community spaces or create rents that are, um, that are accessible to new entrepreneurs and growing businesses. Because I know I've, I've met several people um, out here that could quickly jump into a mall space or something like that and grow their business. Um, but they're really high rents. So they have to go to these, you know, unkept areas or existing areas paying similarly high rents um, instead of using those resources we already had. I mean, we had one mall recently that Ikea was considering taking over and building an Ikea, um, but they couldn't come to an agreement. They were about 80% of the way there. And then the, the local community didn't want to uh, provide breaks on the pricing and things like that to get that Ikea going. So now we just still have a big empty mall. That's right. great. That's awesome. I would I would rather have you just given them that mall for free, and we'll get some economic boom in the area. So how's he gonna fix that? Uh, well, so basically, he just wants to make that real estate uh, affordable through some sort of regulation. So mm. when when places are empty for a certain amount of time, um, like malls specifically, yeah, uh, it should be a, some kind of squatters' right rule that takes over that. Something you know, like that, yeah. yeah. Because on the West Coast, I know they're building a lot of um, town squares or town centers is what they mm. call them. And they have a lot of big businesses. There's some kind of park usually integrated. Yeah, yeah, I've seen those, yeah. Lots of walking space. We could do that with so many malls. You could build yeah. a big event center. And you have to make malls. the shopping there as an experience, not as going to get things because Amazon can get it for you way better. Exactly. And those yeah. are the kind of businesses we should get in there. You know, I mean, yeah. why why isn't there a gym in an old mall space? Right, a gym or a barber shop. Or a you know, the kind of things climbing. that you still have I mean, to go to. Yeah. There's no reason Macy's needs to be five stories high. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't even need to be one. Rip yeah. out the Macy's and stick in a rock climbing gym. I mean, <laughs> seriously. There's Target. so many things we could do. I yeah. mean, indoor parks. I mean, a lot of, lot of stuff we can do for people with the balls. And they're just sitting there being unused, waste yeah. of money. So huge policy announcements, ban robocalls, <laughs> uh, the American Mall Act, uh, two things that he's introduced this week. And he's going to keep doing this. So we'll keep you guys updated on those as they keep coming out. Uh, let's talk about his numbers in closing here. He's he cleared the, the $130,000 donor threshold for the debate. Right now, the debates are all that matters. Um, he's got to get on the stage uh, and then we can talk about what he needs to do once he gets there. Um, but he's already matched the $130,000 long time ago. He's got that. He needs to be. So we did confirm it needs to be 2%, not 4%, right? 
Yeah, he needs to reach 2% in f- at least four polls. Okay, so he needs four to get approved polls. Emerson the- has him at three, which I think is probably the, the most generous poll we've seen so far for Yang. Mm-hmm. Right behind Beto, who's at 4%. Or the, the main poll was probably the most generous, but that was a very state-specific, the Emerson oh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking about a national poll, yeah. yeah. Uh, so right behind Beto, I think he's going to bounce Beto pretty soon. Beto's gotten really desperate recently saying some pretty crazy things he's he's uh using the cocaine of of saying crazy things and it gives him a little bit of a boost and then he's crashing uh so i think he'll bounce beto hopefully by the next time we record again he's a uh, bounce beto and then you mentioned earlier that he's gained a lot of twitter followers since uh the debate started uh, about yeah, about one hundred and twenty-five thousand. yeah since the debate the debate so and he only had uh, four hundred thousand. And so, as Yang likes to point out, not many people are on Twitter, so yes. it's a nice number when he gets one hundred twenty thousand followers. Is another thing is you know get out there, wear your Yang gear, talk to people about Yang. I mean, you don't. I mean, just tell people to Google Andrew Yang. Yeah, and know. it's getting to the point. You're probably experiencing this too, where I would talk to people about Yang really early, and they're like, "Yeah, you know, I'm more focused on the people who can actually win." And now that they're starting to hear about him, they're like, "Hey, I saw that Yang guy you told me about, and exactly. I'm really liking what I hear." So that makes a really big difference. And not everyone that follows him on Twitter is a voter, but they're hearing about him that way, and hopefully, they're future voters. And and I mean, there's a lot of people that aren't aren't necessarily tied to Trump. You know, there's even some very, very, um, most supportive. people are tied to Trump. Yeah. There's very supportive Trump voters that are just, you know, interested in somebody that's actually going to do what they said they're going to do. And you know? he's really hard to hate. You know, I haven't heard anyone who has been really rude about him. Usually they're like, Oh, you know, I really like, he seems like a nice guy, but he doesn't have a chance. It's usually the worst thing yeah. that you'll hear about Andrew Yang. Unless so, they're just very, you know, staunch. Oh, I can't give people money. But, but then they probably don't know anything about him. Well, then know? they're not going to, they're not going to support anyone with Trump in that. And maybe I don't agree. I think that if they hear about Yang, I, I know people, I mean, you know, my family, if someone in my family is willing to adjust their vote for Andrew Yang, then, than anybody will. No, I mean, what I was saying is like, um, those kinds of people aren't saying, uh, aren't the staunch anti-welfare people, you know, they're not Uh, saying, oh, you can't, they're not being super libertarian about it. You know, anyone that's being super libertarian is probably not going to come around. Um, Some do. It's weird though. Yeah, he has kind of a libertarian following and it's so weird because it, they're, they're obviously there they're just because of his tone, right? I mean, his policies, for the most part, aren't very libertarian and are. they just feel respected. I mean, yeah, but his main ticket items are not libertarian. It, like, if I don't know, if like Amy Klobuchar, is that how you say her name? If she had come out with, with UBI and um, universal health care, would she be, would she get accepted by libertarians the way Yang is? I, I don't think so. I don't know. I mean, UBI is definitely something that is somewhat libertarian in its origins. So it's not that far fetched for people to come around. Universal health care, less so. Um, and some of his other policies, like his gun policies and things like that, are not necessarily very um, libertarian friendly. Um, yeah, but I would say, vote, yeah. I would say that of all the candidates, 
I think Yang is the most likely to appeal to anybody that voted for Trump. Yeah. Oh, I don't think there's any question about that. I mean, and so that's why I'm saying like, go out, talk to people, especially if you're in that, if you're in that deep blue state that people don't even bother voting sometimes (laughs) as Republicans. Yeah. Talk to them about Yang. Let them know, hey, you know, there, there is another option. If, if there's going to be a Democrat that's going to beat Donald Trump, you want it to be Andrew Yang. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, so I think it's important get out there, talk to people, uh, and then obviously we got some events coming up for Yang. Yep, yep. he's going to be in Portland on yep. the thirteenth Saturday. Yep. So that he was in Portland, I think a while back went re- really well, and then he was in Seattle too. So and there's a very, uh, a very well educated populace out there. And I think they listen to people like Andrew Yang and they pay attention and they're on Twitter. So that should be an exciting rally to follow up on in the, in the YouTube. Um, and then the upcoming a week later, he's doing Philadelphia, New Hampshire and two New Hampshire spots. So uh, leading up to the debate at the end of July. So we just got to keep going. We need to uh, get those polling numbers up by talking to people because the people that are not on Twitter are the ones that are getting hit in these polls. Okay. Awesome. So next time we record, we'll come with a pre-debate episode. We can do that through the next couple episodes, and then we can come with some strategy about what Yang needs to do uh, to do well in the debate. And then we'll cover any new policies that come up, any new big media showings that he has. Uh, Keep you guys updated. All right. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. And that's our show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Check us out on YouTube. We've got a Talking Yang YouTube channel where we're going to throw some neat charts and graphs and data up for you guys. Also, give us a follow on Twitter at Talking Yang. We're going to do our best to keep you updated every week, same time, releasing on Saturdays. And next week, we're excited because we're going to start some pre-debate coverage. What does Yang need to do to be better in the next debates? So give us a like, give us a follow, subscribe. Thanks. Thanks.